Welcome to Labor Law Radio. This is your host, Michael Tracy, attorney at law. And we've got another hour of labor and employment news information and just plain fun. The format for the show is each week we pick up a different uh, topic of conversation relating to labor and employment law and discuss it, uh, get to some of your questions and cover some interesting and informative cases and issues that come up in in that area of the law. Uh, This week uh, we're going to be talking about uh, wrongful termination. So if you have any questions relating to that, there's two ways you can get a hold of me. It's uh, via the web, www.laborlawradio.com. Or you can call us uh, toll-free at 888-678-7229. That's 888-MR-TRACY if you have any questions. But before I can get into the wrongful termination subject, I do have some administrative cleanup from last week's broadcast, which was our premier broadcast, and I was quite uh, surprised at the uh, response we've got. Uh, so I want to cover some of the uh, some of the issues that uh, some of the listeners and uh, web listeners had, uh, had raised. Uh, for the truck drivers, I said in the previous broadcast, if we got enough truck drivers calling in on this issue, I would do a truck driver show. We have had enough truck drivers calling in. I got uh, a good number of them just from the first broadcast with various questions about why truck drivers are exempt and what's special about them. So we will have a truck driver section or truck driver show coming up later this month. You can check the uh, Labor Law Radio website to get the uh, scheduling information on that. The second uh, topic caused a bit of a stir, I'll just touch on it briefly to clarify something, was was my use of the term illegal employers. Well, I use that term to mean any employer who violates the labor laws of California by using undocumented workers or other people who are unable or unwilling to enforce their rights. Uh, A lot of it does relate to uh, undocumented workers, but I want to point out that this is not a political show. We're not talking about whether somebody should or shouldn't be granted amnesty or whether a law should or shouldn't pass. That's not my job. I'm an attorney, and my job is to represent my client's interest and protect their rights. So what I'm talking about is using existing laws that are already on the books that do allow employees to enforce their rights regardless of their immigration status. And these laws have been used against uh, illegal employers, people who are using undocumented workers. By myself and several other enterprising and creative attorneys in California who are using laws that are already on the books, that uh, this conduct is already illegal, and they do allow private rights of action against these employers as opposed to waiting for the government to to do some type of uh, enforcement action, you know, some criminal enforcement action. So I will have an entire show on illegal employers, hopefully, have some other of the guest attorneys who are pursuing. Uh, novel theories of law in this area, and some have been uh, fairly successful in their recent endeavors. Uh, Another administrative note is the uh, veteran show is scheduled for July 7th, so if you're a veteran with uh, issues with the Board of Veterans uh, Appeals and are interested in appealing that, wondering what your legal rights are, what the process is, what anything that relates to uh, veterans' claims for benefits, that show will be uh, July 7th. If you could submit your uh, questions online well in advance, because many of these things are complex, and I'd like to cover it for the general public as well so they know what the process is in terms of what the veterans have to go through in order to overcome some of the hurdles that the uh, that the Veterans Administration throws at them. So the final uh, administrative cleanup item that I have was uh, last week we talked about unpaid overtime for various uh, job classifications in, in California. And there was two that I, they said I was going to talk about I didn't get to because I ran out of time. 
And that was the computer professional exemption and the administrative exemption for information technology workers. I didn't say anything about them because there's not a whole lot to say about them. They're relatively easy exemptions to deal with. If you're a computer programmer working in California, there's a very, very good chance you're, you're entitled to overtime, even if you're paid on a salary basis. I have a lot of the stuff up on the website, gotovertime.com, that uh, talks quite a bit about the technology field. You know, there is this uh, computer professional exemption that has a uh, hourly rate cap on it, but it's a it's, it's on a sliding scale. And I mean, so if you're making less than one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars a year as a computer programmer, and you're working any legitimate amount of overtime, forty five fifty hours a week uh, of overtime, you're probably entitled to the overtime premium for that pay. But all that information is on the website. Same thing uh, for information technology workers, uh, IT network engineers, anything like that. The U.S. Department of Labor published an opinion letter about six months ago that clearly identifies you as non-exempt employees, that is, entitled to overtime. And the advantage to that is that it is a federal opinion, and it is covered by federal law, that you are entitled to something called liquidated damage, which is twice the, the damages for your unpaid overtime. I won't get into all of that later because we do have that scheduled for a, a wage and hour section later in the month, but all that information is on my website, and you can... Uh, visit it there if you have a desire for a computer programmer or an IT worker. So with that said, uh, that's the administrative cleanup that we have, and now we can get into our main topic of wrongful termination. Now, wrongful termination is the most misunderstood issue in employment law. In fact, I spend a good portion of each day explaining to prospective clients why they don't have a case for wrongful termination And the reason for that is, fundamentally, California is an at-will state. What that means is that either side of the employment relationship, either the employer or the employee, can terminate the employment at any time for any reason or no reason at all. Unless you uh, have a union contract or some other type of employment contract, the presumption is that your employment in California is at-will, and that means you can terminate it, or the employer can terminate it at any time uh, for any reason. The best way to understand this analysis is to look at it from, you know, sort of put the uh, shoe on the other foot, look at it from the other point of view in terms of you quitting a job. Uh, You have the exact same right to quit as the employer has to fire you. So if you come into your job one day and say, boss, I quit, the boss may ask you why. You don't have to tell him. There's no obligation at all for you to tell your employer why you are quitting. You know, there's this um, two-week notice uh, thing that you may do as a courtesy. Uh, It may be nice to do uh, for your employer, but it's certainly not mandatory. There's no statute that requires that you give uh, two weeks notice, uh, and the employer on the flip side doesn't have to give you two weeks notice if they decide to terminate you. Now, if you had signed an employment contract where you agreed to give the party, you know, the, the employer two weeks notice if you uh, were going to quit, then you do have to honor the terms of that contract. The vast majority of employees in California don't. So if just one day you walk into your boss and say, boss, I quit, you don't have to say anything else. Uh, you don't have to do anything else. You can walk out and you don't owe him any explanation. On the flip side, the exact same analysis applies the other way around. The boss can, you know, you walk into work one day, say, you know, employee, you're fired. We, That's it. Uh, here's your final paycheck. They do your final paycheck upon termination immediately. And there may be some other issues in terms of what they have to pay you for your work that you've performed so far. But in terms of a wrongful termination, uh, they do have the absolute right to, to terminate you at any time for any reason as long as it's not uh, wrongful. And we will get into uh, the exceptions to this rule and what makes a wrongful termination. But they do, don't have to have a reason, and they can uh, terminate you immediately, just like you can quit. The same thing you can uh, 
look at it from the point of view, you walk in and say, boss, I quit today. Why is that? Well, I got a job for more money. Uh, the employer can't sue you for that or say, no, you can't quit. That's not a legitimate reason. Uh, you know, just put the shoe on the other uh, foot and say, well, if you walk in one day and the employer says, you know, employee, you're uh, terminated today. And you say, well, why is that? Well, we found somebody who's going to do the job cheaper than you. I exact same situation, just the shoe's on the other foot, perfectly legal, nothing wrong with that. It's an at-will state. Nobody said uh, they were going to guarantee you employment for the rest of your life or not hire somebody that would do it uh, cheaper, just like you never promised to not work for more money for somebody else. Now, if you have an employment a contract where you say for the next year, I'm going to work at this salary and not uh, accept more money and not go looking for somebody else, and your obligation to me is that you're going to employ me for the next year, then that breaks the at-will uh, relationship. But the vast majority of you don't have those contracts. If you do have one of those contracts, well, the terms of the contract apply, and you need your attorney to uh, to read that contract. So this applies to people who are not members of unions and don't have uh, employment contracts. So that's the basic way to uh, think of you know wrongful termination. Is the, the first problem you have is that California is an at-will state, and you have to overcome it. Now, there are two words in the, for the phrase wrongful termination. There's wrongful and there's termination. We're going to get into what is wrongful in the second half of the show. What I'm going to talk about right now is the termination part of wrongful termination. Sounds pretty simple uh, on its face, but attorneys and courts have had numerous problems in dealing with it, exactly what is a termination. In fact, one court recently wrote, Absent a termination, there is no cause of action for wrongful termination. So while it seems you know, blindingly obvious on its face, a lot of attorneys don't understand this. A lot of lay people don't understand it. And I want to talk about exactly what makes up a termination. Now, if you get fired from your job and the boss says, you know, we don't want you anymore, that's certainly a termination. But that doesn't happen as frequently as we would like in terms of a nice, clean, wrongful termination case. A lot of times what happens is the employee quits, and that creates a variety of issues because you weren't terminated, you quit. So there's this concept called wrongful, uh, I'm sorry, constructive discharge. Now, that is an extremely difficult concept uh, to prove. So the best, if you have a wrongful termination claim, the best type of claim you have is when you're actually terminated. If you quit, you have a whole bunch of additional hurdles that you're going to have to overcome, and that's what I'm going to talk about uh, right now. The legal standard in order to prove that you are constructively discharged, that is essentially forced into quitting, uh, so the employer sort of knows what the game is, and they don't want to terminate you because then you might have a claim for wrongful termination, and they're just going to make things so bad that you have no choice but to quit. And if they do that, then you'll have a claim for wrongful termination under this theory of constructive discharge, as long as the it's actually a wrongful termination that we'll, we'll cover that part later. So the legal standard for this constructive discharge is that the employer has to create an environment that is so intolerable and unreasonable that a reasonable person in that position would have been compelled to resign. It's not enough that your job be uncomfortable. It's not enough that there be a few isolated incidents where your boss yelled at you or your boss maybe embarrassed you in front of your coworkers or your boss said some nasty things about you behind your back that you eventually heard about. That's not enough for constructive discharge. There has to be some pervasive and aggravated conduct that's continuous that amounts to you know intolerable working conditions. In general, a single isolated incident will never be enough 
to amount to constructive discharge unless it's a you know the violent attack, some criminal act that they uh, they performed on you, some threat to do harm to you or your family. That in itself would would probably enough to to force a reasonable person to walk out and to not want to deal with that employer anymore. But barring that, it really takes a tremendous amount of uh, uh, continuous harassment uh, in order to, to force a reasonable person to be compelled to quit. Not just as a good thing, not that, you know, better than uh, another job that you had or another job was potentially better. It has to be that you were compelled to quit that job and a reasonable person would be compelled to quit that job. So what I want to talk about is how you might go about proving that because a lot of the things in the law, you know, there's a legal theory that we talk about here on the show, and that's all well and good, but that's not the way things really work in the real world. We'll see that in some of the sample cases that we're going to take up in the second half of the hour, where uh, the jury sort of goes with the right thing, and it may not be exactly what the law requires given that legal standard. So it's very important when you have these cases that you be able to present this information to the judge or jury so that you can't create you know, a compelling case that you were essentially treated unjustly and that you have some right to redress in this. And in any employment context, the most important thing you have to assume is that every single one of your coworkers is going to testify against you. They may be your friends today, they may have babysit your kids, you may have babysat their kids, but once you leave that employment relationship and you've uh, instituted a hostile legal action against that employer, in general, the people who work there side with the employer, and you need to assume that going into your case. So with any employment case, you have to assume that the uh, coworkers are going to testify against you, and that is why it is absolutely important that you document everything that goes on. Anything that somebody says to you, anything that you respond, any complaints that you make to a human resources, to your boss, to anybody else in the company, it's absolutely imperative that all of that be documented because your recollection of those events and your former co-workers' recollections of those events are going to be vastly different when it comes time to depositions and trial and this, this case goes on. I can't tell you how many times uh, employees have come to me in an initial thing, oh, this employee is going to testify for me, this employee is going to testify for me, this employee is going to testify for me. Six months into the thing, those employees are our worst wit they're hostile witnesses they're testifying for the defendant and it is not a uh, it is not a good thing so what you can do in cases like in, in any case where you are employed there you are in a hostile work environment or you feel that you're being you know forced to resign some type of constructive discharge case is document everything and use email as your best friend because people can't recall conversations people won't remember you know, whether the boss yelled at you, whether it was very loud, whether it was, uh, you know, angry, how many times it was in a week. But if you use email as your friend, that will greatly simplify your case. The way you do that is you use it to document, you know, the aggravated and hostile actions taken by your boss or whoever it is at this company that's trying to get you to resign. So if, you know, if, if the boss yells at you today, uh, you might just send an email out to your coworker. Oh, well, did you see uh, Mr. Boss yell at me today? And hopefully, because uh, at this point, you know, you're still friends, and she's going to write something back like, oh, that was terrible. I don't know how you continue working here. Well, that is golden for you. So what you want to do is sort of induce your co-employees, your coworkers, to substantiate your claim. First of all, you know, you, you have a document that says, 
uh, that this uh, coworker saw the boss yell at you. Not only that, but it was so pervasive that that employee said at that time that so excessive that she wouldn't stay working there. She didn't know that how you would stay working there. Or, you know, generally they send you sympathetic comments or, or other things in the emails that, you know, come time of, of trial, those things are going to be very useful. And they're even more useful than that because ultimately you don't want to go to trial. Uh, you know, trials are big, they're messy, they're very time-consuming, and they're not a lot of fun for uh, plaintiffs and defendants. They may be a lot of fun for attorneys. I like trials, but chances are that, uh, that you won't and the defendant won't. So what you want to do is amass as much evidence as you can get prior to trial. So if you, if you show up with some of these and we call smoking guns, you know, sometimes a you know, videotape of the boss, you know, doing something to you, that's obviously a, a smoking gun. The, the case will probably resolve itself very, very quickly. Email is rapid, is, has become, you know, the largest smoking gun that there is. A lot of people don't realize that anything that you write in an email is going to come up in a trial. Even if you didn't print it out and take it home with you, the defendant is going to keep copies of all your emails. So just like we said, we want to use email to your friends to try to elicit sympathetic and uh, cooperating comments from your coworkers. You also have to be very careful that you don't downplay the actions in emails. As in social situations, you may tend to, you know, minimize the impact. You know, Sally might say, "Well, that was really mean of Mr. Boss to yell at you today." And if you reply back, "Oh, it's no big thing. I'm used to it." Uh, you know, that's a smoking gun for the defendant. They're, you're, they're definitely going to bring that up in trial and say, well, she she was used to this. It was, you know, just, uh, you know, harmless play among coworkers. And, you know, occasionally people uh, do raise their voice in the office, but it doesn't mean that everybody needs to quit as soon as uh, somebody gets yelled at. And here, here's an email from her admitting that it wasn't that big a deal. So you do want to be very careful what you say in response to any emails that uh, other people send out, as well as working to elicit their responses. Because, again, in order to prove a constructive discharge, you really have a high bar to, to cross. And, you know, when you, you come in and you speak to an attorney about it, I mean, the best thing that can happen is that you get fired. But constructive discharge is extremely difficult to deal with. And if you are going to go with the theory of constructive discharge, you're going to need substantial evidence on your side. You're going to need something more than simply your own testimony. You're going to need some type of smoking gun, hopefully in the form of a, an email conversation or something from your boss, something that can conclusively prove that you were indeed compelled to quit this job. Now, with that said, we've talked about what happens when you have an employment contract, and that's usually very easy to determine when you're a member of a union or have a written employment contract. But what if you, when you're hired, your boss tells you, that uh, you have a guaranteed employment or that they expect you to be there for a long period of time or that they treat all their employees fairly, that they only terminate you for cause or only terminate you after you've had an opportunity to present your case. All of those things may give rise to what's known as an implied uh, in fact contract. There's another legal theory for this. It's called a covenant of good faith and fair dealing. The two things are so similar, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to merge them together into to one topic here because uh, this is legal hair splitting. But essentially, there is a concept that even if you don't have a written employment contract, uh, based on the, the conduct of the parties and various other factors and representations that are made by the employer, that may give rise to an implied-in-fact contract. Now, keep in mind that employment is still at will. So what that means is that not only can the employer terminate the employment, but either side can also change the terms of the employment at any time for any reason or no reason at all, as long as it's not wrongful. So 
just like the employer can say, we're going to give you a raise this month and, you know, going forward and you're going to make an extra $5,000 a year, the employer can also say, we're going to pay you less money going forward. And you really have two choices. You can take it or you can uh, quit the job and go find employment somewhere else where they will pay you what you feel that you're worth in the marketplace. So not only can they change your salary, but they can also change the conditions of your employment at will, unless, you know, there's a corresponding contract that is an obligation. So if the employer says, we're going to, you know, change your salary and increase you by $5,000 a year, that's fine, or decrease you by $5,000 a year, that's fine. They can also say, you know, we used to have you employed and we told you you'd only be terminated for cause, but we're going to change that. Now we can terminate people for any reason, no reason at all. We don't need cause anymore. And guess what? You're terminated. That's also perfectly legal because they can change the terms of this uh, employment relationship at will. It's essentially the way the law looks at it is because they can terminate the entire relationship at will. They can uh, terminate you and then simply rehire you under these uh, these new conditions. So in order to form a contract, there needs to be something mutually binding on both sides. That is, if, if you agree to work for one year for the company and the company agrees to pay you for one year for your work, then they can't six months into that say, well, we're terminating you because they have an obligation to you, that is to pay you for your year, and you have a corresponding obligation to them, that is to work for one year. But if it's simply you know, a, a guarantee by the employer without any corresponding obligation on your part, it's not going to amount to a, a contract. So there are a couple cases where this contract will be implied or this covenant of good faith and fair dealing will be will be seen to be uh, applicable in the employment context. And that is where the employer, through uh, their personnel policies, usually in the employee handbook, they've outlined something more than at-will employment, which is why most employee handbooks right at the beginning say your employment is at-will and nothing in this manual will ever change that. Usually that statement is, an, is enough of a disclosure to prevent it from being read into an at-will, uh, read into an employment uh, contract. But there are some problems with the way em- employers put together their employee handbooks. And even if you do have a, a disclaimer that says that it is at-will and nothing can change that, that can in fact be changed by uh, you know policies and uh, procedures by the employer that they put in. But it is a higher bar to meet. But if the employer does have an established policy and procedure in place that does something more than establish at will, it guarantees you some type of rights, maybe guarantees you a right to have your to be fired for cause, to have HR review your termination, to have a, a vice president or somebody else uh, sign off on your termination and make sure that it is uh, legitimate, then those can be seen as one factor in establishing an implied in fact contract. Another factor is your longevity of service. If you had simply been there for a couple months or even a year or two, it's probably not enough to have made you rely on that gratuitous promise by the employer for that uh, guaranteed employment. But if you have been there an extended period of time, you may have come to rely on these policies and procedures of the employer and expect to have a right to employment unless you're terminated for cause. There's also the the other factor is if the employer continuously reinforces it. So if you know HR says, well, we take care of all of our employees here. We don't terminate people without a good reason. Uh, you know, there was one case where it said you know termination was as a last resort. So if they do reinforce those policies, that's another uh, practice that would uh, you know lead to being an implied in fact contract. The other one is whether it's an, a standard practice in the industry to guarantee employment for this type of stuff. That one's not as relevant because in, in any industry, there's a variety of different practices, and most of it's going to be determined by the policies of that particular employer. But generally in public uh, agency, you know, in schools, government, things like that, you're going to be 
more likely to read an, an employment uh, contract, an implied in fact employment contract, rather than an, you know a fast food restaurant or something like that. So there are a couple cases where the courts have drawn these boundary lines in order to determine exactly when an implied in fact contract exists and when one doesn't. And it kind of sets a range. These are very difficult uh, things to deal with. And I can tell you, you know, from an attorney's perspective, if you're relying on an implied in fact contract, you better have some very, very, very good facts that you're going to expect to prevail on that. It's not going to be enough that, you know, the boss told me a uh, you know, he was only going to fire me if he had a good reason. That that won't be enough. You have to have been there a long period of time. There has to be some repeated practice by the employer and some type of reinforcement from the company that, that they are somehow guaranteeing you this job or somehow guaranteeing you something beyond the at-will employment relationship. So, you know, one case that did find that there was an implied contract. In fact, the employee had been there 31 years with the company, had received numerous promotions over the years, and had generally expected that his employment would only be terminated for uh, for good cause, and there was some evidence that the company had reinforced that. So after 31 years, repeatedly promoted, and generally relying on the fact that he was going to be employed at this company until he did something wrong in order to be terminated, that was um, enough to rise to an implied in fact contract that's pretty rare so if you've got 31 years and they suddenly uh, terminate you for uh, for no reason you may have uh, you may have a case on the flip side uh, a case of three years with uh, no promotions and just sort of a, a routine employee in the job no implied uh, contract it just wasn't enough to it wasn't enough time there weren't enough uh, facts you know the company really hadn't reiterated that specific a position they did have some stuff in their employee handbook that was problematic for them but and i'm not saying that the total number of years is always a determinative factor but it does play a major factor in it, especially in turn determining what the pattern and practice of the employer is the next one is sort of in the middle was 15 years repeated assurances of job security consistent salary increases and the employer had a published policy that dismissal was only going to be done as a last resort and this particular one was at a university where also, again, you know, the practice in the industry would be relevant to that particular case. So there you have, you know, three years, 15 years with a variety of other issues that strongly support an implied in fact contract and 31 years with not quite as many issues that, that support an implied in fact contract. So that kind of frames it for you and, and says what you have uh, up in, ahead of you if you're trying to defeat, you know, if you're trying to establish that your employment was not at will, that is, you had to be terminated for cause. Okay, so we've talked about the general rule of at-will employment, some of the difficulties in proving constructive discharge, and a lot of the difficulties of proving an implied employment contract. So you're probably wondering, you know, where do these million-dollar verdicts come from in wrongful termination cases? Coming up the other side of the break, we're going to talk about exactly what is wrongful, that is, what types of reasons can an employer not use in order to terminate the employment relationship. We're going to cover some illustrative cases in terms of different samples of what has been allowed and disallowed by the courts. And finally, we're going to talk about uh, the most powerful weapon in employers' arsenals for defeating claims for wrongful termination, and that is the uh, defense of after-acquired evidence. And hopefully we'll be able to get to some of your questions as well. So stay tuned, and we'll see you on the other side of the break. <laughs> 